Very good. All right. Turn to 2 Chronicles. I've been tasked to go through a book that takes two hours and 30 minutes to read through. That's if you're a pretty good reader. While you're turning there, anybody moved locations. Like you were born in another state and you moved here. Hard for you guys to know where you're originally from. Okay, so was it hard for you guys to transition to another state? You don't know. It wasn't like a big culture shift, right? It wasn't like going to another country. Um, imagine going to another country. Imagine uh, everything that you ever knew. Uh, would change. Foreign government comes in, breaks down the walls of the city, setting your house on fire, and forcing you and your family to a long part of your country, making you their slaves, and forcing you to learn a new language and live in a culture that's completely alien that you know. This is the very thing that happened to the Israelites. Second Chronicles covers the darkest time in Israel's history. Tonight we're going to cover what led up to exile and the hope God gave his people for their return to the land. So let's, let's talk about what led up to the exile. This is kind of my first point. First, a, pre, a brief review and context. The descendants of Abraham were to be a light to the world, to show the glory of God, his character, and to represent him, to teach his promises to the surrounding peoples. And briefly, they were that. You had this golden years of Solomon. Because Solomon sought the Lord, the Lord blessed the kingdom. Here's what the Bible says about the riches of Solomon. This is in 2 Chronicles chapter 9, if you want to go there. 2 Chronicles chapter 9. You can get a glimpse of what it must have been like to see the splendor of Solomon's temple. Look at verse 20 in chapter 9. Verse 20, All the king Solomon's drinking cups were made of gold, and all the utensils in the hall of the forest of Lebanon, that sounds like something from the Lord of the Rings, were pure gold. Silver was not considered valuable in Solomon's day. You know why? There was so much of it. And he had a fleet of ocean-going ships sailing with King Hiram's fleet. That's King Hiram of Tyre. There's another, world, another leader in the area. Every three years, his fleet would return, bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and monkeys. Can you imagine? Apes and monkeys coming back. Verse 22, King Solomon was richer and wiser than any other king in the world. They all consulted him, talking about the world, the, the different leaders of the area. To hear the wisdom, of, wisdom that God had given him, each of them brought Solomon gifts, articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons, spices, horses, mules. This continued year after year, and Solomon reigned 40 years. During these golden years, you could see another level of meaning to the promise given to Abraham that God would bless the world through his descendants. 
of which Solomon is one. He would come from all over to trade and visit and come to know this great God of Abraham and Jacob and be blessed by him. Another example, there's, there's a place in 2 Chronicles chapter 9 where the queen of Sheba comes seeking questions about life. She wanted Solomon to show her the meaning of life and the one who created life. 2 Chronicles chapter 9, if you want to go there, chapter 1, I'm sorry, 2 Chronicles 9 verse 1 says, The queen of Sheba heard of King Solomon's fame, and she traveled to Jerusalem to test him with difficult questions. She brought with her a large group of attendants, as well as animals loaded with spices, jewels, and large amounts of gold. When she and Solomon met, she asked him all the questions she could think of, and he answered them all. There was nothing difficult for him to explain. The queen of Sheba heard Solomon's wisdom and saw the palace he had built. He saw the, she saw the food that was served at his table and living quarters for his officials, the organization of his palace staff, and the uniforms they wore, the clothing of the servants who waited on him at the feast and the sacrifices at the temple. It left her breathless and amazed. So she's coming with her own entourage and her own uh, majesty, and she's blown away by, by Solomon in, his, in the temple in Jerusalem during the time of this golden era. This is another feature of the promise of Abraham that the world will be blessed. The people were blessed because of the, the obedience of King David and Solomon, and they, were, they, were ble they blessed others in trade and protection. When the surrounding people act kindly to the people of Israel, they were blessed. This is what God promised would happen. The Israelites would be the means which God people from their sins. If they're obedient to the covenant with God, they can enjoy the land flowing with milk and honey until the appropriate time for the true king to arrive. But tragically, it's all been crumbling down. Learn about what happened. Here's what led up to the exile. After Solomon around 930 BC, 930 before Christ, 930 years before Christ, the kingdom split into the northern southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is confusingly called is Judah. That's where the temple is. The kingdom split between two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. They did not agree who the king should be after Solomon. Rehoboam, which is Solomon's son, was the king. Not much is spoken of the northern kingdom in this book because the focus is on David's family. 200 years after the split, the Assyrians came in and destroyed the northern tribe in Israel in 733 BC. So the northern kingdom, they're wiped out by the Assyrians, leaving just Judah, the southern kingdom. Throughout David's uh, kings and bad kings. And there were more bad kings than good. But in five, 597 BC, God sent Babylon to destroy and take the southern kingdom off the captivity as well. Israel, 
the northern kingdom only lasted 200 years. The northern kingdom that split off, so northern, which is called Israel, and then the southern kingdom of Judah, northern kingdom only lasted 200 years. Southern kingdom, where the temple is, lasted 333 years. Just as a, as a way of reference, our country is only, can somebody guess how old our country is? You think, well, our country's pretty, oh, I mean, compared to other countries, it's, it's fairly young. But still, it gives you a frame of reference how long, how patient God This is a testimony to the patience of the Lord. The kings God requires were to be different from the kings of the world. So, uh, Turn in your Bible to Deuteronomy. I'll show you kind of what, what God set up in place for these kings. Moses sets up the role for the kings of Israel before they enter the land. Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20. Here are the laws concerning Israel's kings. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14, 20. Let me read this. When you come to the land, again, they're not giving them instructions. Come into the land that the, Lord, that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set up a king over me like the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. from uh, One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. And look at verse, look, go down to eight, verse 18. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in the book of the law. I'm sorry, write for himself in a, in a book, a copy of the law, approved by the, the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the day. Lord God, all the words law and doing that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom he and his children in Israel so the king in Israel is to write out the the law keep with him. It's checked over by the Levitical priests to make sure for accuracy. And he is to rule the law at his side. The word of the Lord at his side. It's not him ruling, basically. He represents God. So here's the setup. If the servant king is faithful to God and obedient to the people who rules the idea of imputation is not only a new idea, but goes all the way back to Adam in the garden. We see it played out here in the promised land, this new Eden setup. We see the structure in the garden. King ruling under God, the great king. And he's given a command. If he's obedient, he blesses the one he represents. If Adam is obedient, he leads, it leads to eating of the tree of life, the good tree, not the bad tree. The tree of life. And bring into a righteousness and in, in enjoying permanent residence in the garden. So question for you. What is the first book 
first word in the book of First Chronicles. Do y'all remember? What's the first word? Johnny was here, he would know this. Adam, good. Good. It's Adam because the chronicler is tracing of Israel up to where they're at right now. And he does so in a very economic way. Instead of spilling out, explaining everything that Adam did, he says Adam, and the reader should know, he should think about the book of and all of that. So it's an economic way to cover uh, a lot of history. Just like Adam ruled in the garden, we end with the kings. Let's copy the commands of God and keep them at hand while they rule. The, king of Is- the kings of Israel were to represent God's rule to the people and represent the people's obedience to God. If the kings and the people failed to obey what would happen? What's the opposite of blessing? Curses. Look at Deuteronomy 28. Turn there real quick. And you'll... So, what is expected in Deuteronomy 17? We see what will happen if they're not obedient to God's commands. It talks about the curses of the covenant. Going to run through the curses, curses, personal blessing in theocracy, curses by disease and drought, curses by defeat and deportation. When they, when Israel became, they started getting their butts kicked in war, and they were. We'll, we'll learn in a second. They were deported. The the curse of reverse status. No longer, my people. The curse of military siege and the curse of nation. So this is Deuteronomy 28. And listen carefully at this warning. And I don't know if this is a warning or prophecy or maybe both. But listen carefully to this. Deuteronomy 28, verse 58. Preparing the people to enter the land. If you refuse to obey all the words of the written in the scroll and fear glorious and awesome name the Lord your God then the Lord will increase your punishment those of your descendants great and long lasting afflictions and severe enduring illnesses he will inflict you with all the diseases of Egypt that you dreaded and they will uh, persi- uh, persistently afflict you moreover the Lord will bring upon you every kind of sickness and plague not mentioned in the scroll of the commandments, you have very few of you left, this remnant, though at one time you were as the stars in the sky, because you will have disobeyed the Lord God. This is what will happen. Just as the Lord delighted in you numerous, so he will take delight in destroying and dismantling you. You will be uprooted from the land that you are uprooted from the land you are about to possess. The Lord will scatter among the nations. He goes on. He says, "Among the nations, you will have no rest." In verse sixty-five, you will be terrified by night and day, and you will have no certainty of survival from one day to the next. So that is what's laid out 
if they're disobedient. And so in going back to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, we see an echo of Deuteronomy 28 of these curses. This is what 2 Chronicles chapter 7 says. Look at that, verse 17. As for you, if you walk before me faithfully as David your father did, and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your throne as I covenanted with David your father. When I said, you shall never fail to have a successor to rule over Israel. Verse 19. And for decrees and commands... I will uproot Israel from my land given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. I will make it a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. This temple will become a heap of rubble. All who pass by will be appalled and say, why has the Lord to this land and to this temple? The people because they have forsaken the Lord, the God of their who brought them out of Egypt and embraced other gods who worshiped and served them. That is why he brought all this disaster upon them. So in 2 Chronicles, a reminder of the curses of the covenant in Deuteronomy 28. He leaves them without any excuse to understand what's about to happen. Tragically, and again, Solomon but tragically, time passed, and the word of God faded from their minds and hearts of the people and the kings. The heart of the book of the Second Chronicles follows, follows the kings in the line of King David. And I just want to highlight the good, the bad, the ugly real quick. There's a lot of them. There's at least 40. Some good kings. Can somebody name uh, some good kings here in this book? This is past David, post David. Post David and Solomon. Any other kings? Names of good kings? Emma? Josiah. Josiah. Very good. Very good. What did he do? i show you where. Oh, no, you got to show you where. You can't just give the answer. It's like a math problem. Some good kings. Kings and later on, King Josiah. Hezekiah destroys the idols of Baal, and Josiah restores God's word in the worship of the people and reminds them of their covenant with him. Some bad kings. A bad king. I don't want to talk about. There's a lot. King Ahaz. Verse 3. For the Israelites. That's crazy to me. I can't imagine doing that. And that's bad. But here's the ugly. It gets even worse. And then you have King Manasseh. Again, this is people that came from David's line who should have known better. This is how far off they are. King Manasseh. He reversed the biblical reforms of King Hezekiah and in four Baal and Asherah poles. He killed people. Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end. It says that in 2 Kings 21. 
He was pronounced by God to be more wicked than the Amorites who had lived in Canaan before they were dispossessed by Israel. Like Ahaz, he sacrificed his own son in the fire, practiced the nation, insulted mediums, and spiritualists. And Jewish tradition says he's the one that killed the prophet Isaiah by cutting, cutting him in two. He was so wicked that God sent Assyrians to capture Manasseh and take him away to exile. Remember, the, the Assyrians are the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom point is gone. They are, they're wiped out. They did the same thing as the southern kingdom, and they're gone. The force that wiped them out came, came and got Manasseh as well. But you won't believe this. This is God's grace. But God is rich in mercy toward this man. Listen to this marvelous act of grace that God showed King Manasseh. And this is in 2 Chronicles 33, verses 12 through 13. While in exile, talking about Manasseh, in his distress, <clears throat> he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. How crazy is that? Think of all the evil that this man has done. Reversing the good King Hezekiah has done. Killing his own, own children. his own people. And he cries out for mercy to the Lord and God hears his, his prayer. One commentator says the, the repentant Manasseh was restored to his kingdom. He started to rebuild Judah. And he also began to institute religious reforms. He got rid of the foreign gods and removed the image from the temple of the Lord, as well as all the altars he had built on the temple hill and in Jerusalem. He threw it out of the city. Then he restored <clears throat> the altar of the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings, thank offerings, and told Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. So he's moved by God's grace, the worst, the most ugly. God is gracious to him and brings restoration to him, only to have him go back. But other kings did not show such repentance. And we're going to come to a place where there's a flashpoint. There's a place of no return. And God enacts the curses of the covenant. The last days are in Second uh, Chronicles 36, which is the last chapter of the book. <coughs> the last king is Zedekiah. And towards the end, there's no older men. There is older men. They're, they're not listening to people like Jeremiah. Second Chronicles 36, verse 15. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through His messengers, people like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, again and again, because He had pity on His people and on His dwelling place, the temple. But they mocked God's messengers, despised His words, and scoffed at His prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against His people, and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians, who killed their young men 
with the sword in the sanctuary and did not spare young men or young women, the elderly or the affirmed. God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, which is the king of Babylon. He carried them into Babylon, all the articles of the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and burned the walls of Jerusalem. All the places and destroyed everything of value there. Verse 20, he, Nebuchadnezzar, carried into exile to Babylon the remnant. You remember that? Who escaped from the sword. And they became servants to him and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rest in the time of its uh, desolation until it rested, until the 70 years were completed in of the by Jeremiah. After many years of disobedience to God's law, God poured out the curse of the covenant. Deuteronomy said, this is what I'm going to do if you're not obedient to my word. The Jewish people from their promised land and traveled over a a thousand miles up along the Fertile Crescent to a place just south of, of Baghdad in Iraq. The route from Babylon to New York City. If they stayed in Jerusalem, they would be scared and starved to death. In months of traveling on foot, didn't have athletic shoes. If they probably have stuff like what Chloe has, if it leave the state, Chloe. It would. If, if their shoes fall apart, go to athletic shoes. They had to make a long journey to a place they know nothing about. Worse yet, they were treated like slaves in second-class citizens. The Jews might as well have been on another planet, Babylon. And they were, and it looked like the Babylonians will not let them leave. But there's a twist in the story. This is, it's like an epic, it is epic. And, this is, and we're part of this, it's amazing. All right, so the twist in the story is the Persian Empire comes it's over Babylon. And God speaks to Cyrus of Persia and puts it in his heart to send the Israelites back to resettle and rebuild the temple. The book of 2 Chronicles ends in a strange way. And I'm going to read this from the NESB, which is a translation that cares more about the original language than like the readability of the English. So, this... This is verse 23. <coughs> this is what Cyrus, Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him uh, go up then. May the Lord his God be with him. Go up then. <laughs> it 
sentence, but scholars have noticed that this, is, this last sentence is incomplete. One commentator says, It's a story in search of an ending. Go up then and do what? Go up then and rebuild your houses, rebuild the temple, worship the Lord. Go up then and set up Baal and Asherah poles and do exactly what your predecessors did. Go up then. How are you going to respond? It's a literary device that causes the reader to think, am I going to respond? Go up then. Reader, like reader, currently doing, the person that's reading this is already back in the land. And they're reading this and they're challenged here. They're going to respond. How they're going to fill in that gap. Am I going to break the pattern of sin? Go back. And that's how the book ends. Another interesting note in the Bible, this in the, the that it ends with Second Chronicles. It ends with this sin. Second question I want to ask of this hope <coughs> for the people that return book. What hope do they have? Who's reading this book? People who return from the Babylonian slash Persian exile. Reading this book 200 to 300 to 200 years before Jesus, the chronicler wants to explain the reason for the exile to give them hope and to live for the Lord. There's another interesting feature in the book. Minus the census, the sin of the census that David did in 1 Chronicles, all the bad stuff about David is, is left out. Even the account of Saul chasing David is left out. The account of Bathsheba is left out, not to make David look good, because Any, anybody can read 1 Samuel and hear all about what David did. It was done on purpose to set up an expectation for a true and better David. The chronicler is making a theological point about the one who is to come. David plays an important typological role like Adam, Abraham, Moses, the tabernacle, temple, and the law. They prepare and point to something beyond themselves. Because of that, the chronicler portrays David as ideal king as the one to come. Ezekiel and Jeremiah speak of the future king as, quote, a new David. They need a king that will be obedient before God. They need a leader who, to bless the people. They need a king to uphold God's holiness. Again, what's special about the kings of That's been the plan obedient king. Remember the, the, the kings of Israel copied the law of Moses and kept it with them as they ruled. They were servant kings under God, the great king. They rendered God's 
high kingly rule and were to obey his covenants. The law is a covenant with eschatological advancements attached to it. The law is a covenant with eschatological advancements attached to it. Let me explain what that means. If a covenant is obeyed, blessings are bestowed, unlocked, and can be given to the people under the covenant. Just like Adam was offered in the garden to eat from the tree of life and live forever. And as the covenant head of, as the covenant head of humanity. The goal of humanity is for us to love God and image Him for His glory and for our joy. Fulfilling the covenant furthers the goal of humanity. The book of 2 it says our need for a new heart the path where God dwells. We need to feel the law to enjoy the blessings. Last th- third, third question we ask of this book. What's the hope for us today, here this evening? What's the hope that we get from reading this book? The hope we have today is that Jesus is the obedient son of David, meaning he rules and brings covenant blessings to the people he represents, not covenant curses. The New Testament says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true king. He didn't just have scripture written out as he ruled. He he is scripture. John 1 says that he is the word of God incarnate. And through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus earned the blessing of salvation that can be offered as a gift to believe. On the cross, the true David secured peace slaying the ultimate, the ultimate enemy of sin and death. On the cross, the true Solomon displays and applies the best piece of wisdom to save his people. The cross didn't look wise. It looked Foolish to those who are perishing, but for us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The true glorious temple of Solomon was torn down so that you can be made beautiful. The promised Messiah King comes to his people on a donkey, which is something in the Old Testament. King Jesus comes and fulfills the law perfectly and reigns on the cross as his throne. Absorbing the covenant curse so he can bless his people with forgiveness and new life. What a good king. Isn't this good? Do you know Jesus as your king? Are you honoring him and following him? Is he ruling your life? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this account to be reminded that the story that we're all in is epic. And you are the ultimate hero. The movies that we enjoy, the stories we read of antagonists and protagonists, good guys and bad guys, all echo and, and, and give us a taste of what we're, the story that we're a part of. Lord, help us to play our part well in honoring you 
Help us to learn from these bad examples and appreciate what you have done for us, giving us a new heart and a reason to follow you. Thank you for your kindness, your goodness, and your grace. I pray you bless us with more levels of obedience and more levels of joy so that we can see you as most satisfying and not sin. Bless these students. Transform us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.